And welcome back, everyone, to Double Down with Breslow. We've got another great guest for you today. He's coming to us from Dublin, Ireland. And he'll have to explain the significance of Dublin to world sports betting because it seems like there's a lot of sports companies headquartered in Dublin. Uh, something to do with good beer uh, probably has something to do with it. But uh, what, Bart, welcome to the program. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. So you, you are currently the founder of Next Gen Wagering, and we're going to get into all that because I'm sure you're going to argue this is the future of sports betting, which is on essentially esports or virtual competitive games. Um, and that obviously is, is exploding, uh, but we want to hear how exactly people are going to bet on this. And you also spent many years with Betfair, which is exchange wagering, which is something else that we haven't really seen in the U.S. yet, which is players being permitted to bet against each other. Uh, but w- before we get into that, t- tell us a little bit about Dublin and why Dublin is an important city for for sports betting. Sure. You know, Betfair was actually uh, founded here and Patty Power, which is one of the bigger flutter brands, European based sports book is here. You have a lot of uh, companies that have set up uh, in and around Ireland due to you know two things. One was was a corporate tax scenario, right? Being a, a, a subsidiary from the UK and, and, and being able to share and hold UK licenses back then is one. Um, and then they just built up a, a core of talent of people who really understood how wagering worked, right? Really understood the ops, the trading, etc. So then when you needed to set up or you were expanding or looking for it, you just had a lot of people in inside of, of, of Ireland or inside of Dublin uh, who who knew the business. So then therefore it just became easier to you know set up shop with people who were you know very familiar with wagering. But it all kind of stems from horse racing and the horse racing industry. Of course, Ireland's a big, big horse breeding and 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 group and and so you know people grew up hunting here as they call it um um here in in, in Ireland. So that's the, what about Isle of Man? You hear about that a lot. Yeah. So the Isle of Man as opposed to to Ireland um, is much more from a tax kind of conducive perspective, right? So the Isle of Man tends to hold the licenses, right? Or you have people who have set up a corporation there, but their still main operations and things tend to be, you know, scattered throughout Europe, let's say, where in Ireland, it's more um, their actual headquarters are here. So for example, the, the Flutter uh, parent headquarters is actually here um, in a town called Klonski here in, in Ireland. And, you know, there's probably, you know, four to, you know, four to 5,000 people employed by by Flutter, you know, in and around, you know, Ireland. So th- there are a lot of people here. Yeah, a lot of people in America don't even know the Flutter brand. They own FanDuel, and that's what that's people right. in America know about. But, but tell us about what else Flutter has. Yeah, so Flutter is uh, the largest public traded wagering operator in the world. Um, not only do they have FanDuel, of course, as you mentioned, um, they have Sport, Sporting Bet, which is one of the biggest sites in Australia. They have the Paddy Power brand. They have the Betfair brand. They have the Stars brands through acquisition. So, and then they also have the Skybet brand, which was a huge UK uh, add-on to the, the the Sky Communications network. So they're they're very big, very powerful, you know, very shrewd and scalable wager operator. Is Ireland one of the first countries to have approved internet sports betting? Is that one of the reasons it became big? No, I it was it wasn't any. You know, Ireland actually had. Has a, a very light licensing right for gambling in Ireland. It was it was way more related to being able to set up the corporate and and human resource advantages than anything. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Betfair is again another brand not really known that much um, in the U.S. 
It's my understanding that Betfair is huge in Europe and primarily because of what they call exchange wagering, which allows players to bet against each other instead of the house. Is, is that right? That is, that is correct. Back w- when I was there and, and, and doing a lot of directive work, the statistic we like to use was back in 2015, there was more than $85 billion of bets matched on the Betfair exchange. And at the time, that was more than the buy-sell volume on eBay. So that is a huge amount of wagering matching going on between people on the, on the Betfair exchange. So it was, it's a massive exchange if you look at it just as a pure kind of trading vehicle, right, or, or trading uh, platform. Um, well, it's interesting that you mentioned eBay because would you say that it sort of operates kind of like eBay? I, it operates with eBay in the way that there is a, you know, a, a buyer and a seller, uh, the primarily the primary difference with the exchange is it's all anonymous, right? So James, you and I can't find each other specifically on the Betfair exchange to strike a bet. I will put up a price, uh, just very similar to the stock market, really, right? Or financial markets. I will put up a bid or an ask order. You will decide whether that price is something that you would like to take, and then you will take. You will be the counterparty to my offer, but. I cannot actively search a directory, find yourself and us get into a bet together. That is not how the platform works. It's scaled to be anonymous. So it is more similar to a stock exchange. Very similar to a stock exchange. And one of my roles at Betfair was to take the product and try to bring it over to the US to establish a foothold for the Betfair brand back in 2016, 2017. This was before obviously all the PAPSA and all the legalization of sports wagering occurred. Um, And one of the things that we really looked at and positioning it in the U.S. was actually more marketing it and kind of outlining it um, as, a, as a financial derivative product, especially with some of the automation and things that the Betfair Exchange supported. So we definitely positioned it that way in the U.S. just to get at people kind of working and educated with it um, at the time. So you guys were trying to bring it to the U.S. even before sports betting was approved, essentially, in, in, and, la- in labeling it something else. Uh, and we did. We, we actually had bets coming from New Jersey, right? So it was approved in New Jersey for horse racing only. Um, and we actually had people making bets in New Jersey with someone in counterpartied in Europe, right? With a fixed odds horse racing bet. It was actually put in, put in place, approved and live. And it went in under kind of a, a temporary kind of licensing test and, um, you know, to varying degrees of success, right? I think a lot of people really liked it and they were excited about the concept, but it was very limited in what we could offer in terms of it was just horse racing. You couldn't do an NFL bet or you couldn't do a major league baseball bet. So, you know, eventually kind of that excitement level just didn't attract probably the right uh, investors. But again, James, probably as you've, you've discovered, you start to see that exchange wagering concept surface now with you know tradi- what I'll call traditional American U.S. sports. Mm-hmm. So w- when we talk about the total market in Europe of sports betting, what percentage of the people are doing it the old-fashioned way, betting against the house versus betting against each other? It is wildly heavily weighted to betting against the house if you're talking about shares of you know wins or losses by customers in Europe. I would say uh, the exchange volume is really big, right? Uh, but that's a lot of people being able to do 
um, trading in market, back and forth, hedging positions. So the actual betting volume, um, it's it's less than 10% that occurs on an exchange, exchanges in Europe. It's, it's much, much, much heavier house betting. Okay. So therefore, we shouldn't expect this to be something big that takes over the US and ends up being the dominant uh, method for people to, to bet. I mean, look, I love the exchange. I love the technology. I think a disruptive technology that's based on financial market trading would speak much greater to a U.S. customer, to be honest with you, than, than it would a European customer just by nature. And the reason is because betting kind of, you grew up with betting and fixed odds betting in Europe, right, as something being legal, where in the U.S. you didn't. And this is all very new to people. But stock market trading, put call options, all that, all that derivative vehicles, that's all very popular and you can see a lot of the meme stock and the you know reddit bets and all that stuff is still you know wildly popular so there could be a scenario where it becomes a much greater share of betting eventually right in the US but i wouldn't see it ever probably crossing 50% usage and then 50% against the house right and 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 the sheer reason is it's still the the the, the house or the the sports books are just much, 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 much better at marketing, much, much better at, 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 at talking to users and offering everything and they're in front of all the TV and everything where an exchange platform is by nature a platform, right? So it's a piece of software and people have to kind of stumble onto it more than they do kind of being having it put into, in front of their face. And ultimately, what is the reason why a person would prefer exchange wagering over betting against the house? So to, for me, uh, the, the, the biggest parts of the exchange, once you're able to kind of understand what, what to do, the, the three benefits of it was very clear. One is you tend to get better pricing, right? So the, 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 the big or the over round, as they say out here in Europe, um, is, is almost always generally better on an exchange because it's two separate people. There's no middleman, et cetera, et cetera. So the prices on your money line bets or on your, you know, your, your basic, you know, handicap betting, you know, two teams, you know, Patriots versus Seahawks minus seven and a half. Um, you're going to get a better price, right? You're going to pay less to the house in, in your VIG. That's the first thing. The second thing is the ability to, to trade your position in and out in play is much more robust, much faster, very fast settlement. So you could take five different positions inside an NFL game, for example, on the exchange every time um, someone scores. And you're actually just, just like a financial market, you're actually trading in and out of your existing position versus completely creating a whole nother bet to settle and to settle and to settle. What that ultimately means, James, is you, your bankroll goes farther. You can use your bankroll to make more bets because you're able to take the same position and trade in and out faster. That's the second advantage. And then the third advantage um, of the exchange is normally they also allow a lot more automated trading. So the one thing you could see as is AI continues to progress here and the average person could potentially think about creating more automated betting strategies or you know, handicapping strategies. The exchange actually allows you to implement them as an individual where you'd never be able to do that 
on on a book and 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 they'd obviously never give you access to their you know automated backend tools of course yeah isn't another potential benefit that you can bet on real kind of one-off type sports that are smaller that you know the the vegas books and the big books are afraid to take odds on because they don't really know the game but as long as it's just one player against another matched up fine they'll let the two of them bet on anything you want you can bet on a cornhole game yeah so that is the exchange for for the exchanges that will survive it's all about liquidity for your for that exact reason because it's still person against person someone still has to create an offer right so i still have to put up will that spider beat the other spider up the wall and you have to decide to take that bet so you have to have a good amount of accounts and people in and out of the exchange such that you can find those fun one-off bets. Um, that's why it's very hard for exchange to get off the ground, right? So some of these guys in the US um, who are starting their own exchange platforms, what we call the liquidity build is hard to get going because those are what keep people. Those are really cool opportunities, but you need enough people that you know will offer something like that to, to take advantage of it. And so what is the state of exchange wagering in the U.S. right now? Has it been tried anywhere yet? Yeah. Uh, so this, the, the relative state of exchange wagering is roughly speaking, the states treat exchange wagering very similar to sports betting. So if you uh, are, have a sports betting license, um, then an exchange license kind of can go along with it with some considerations. There still has to be a bit of platform validation and 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 what they call GLI testing but ultimately yes um roughly those kind of go hand in hand very similar to how it's 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 regulated uh in Europe now so New Jersey uh definitely has some exchange wagering products and services and you see you know like I said you see these guys cropping up but the hard part is in order to build up that liquidity you need three four five states of licenses under your belt, which is very cost prohibitive, of course, right? Because then you have to go secure the licenses. So to build up that exchange liquidity, you're still under the same type of sportsbook licensing regime where you're spending the money to get the licenses and then it just becomes prohibitive. Yeah. And the big boys don't necessarily want to offer exchange, right? Because they don't make as much money from it. It can potentially be cannibalistic from their existing business. So if they feel very good about their risk business, if they don't have an existing business like Betfair already has, then it why build up liquidity in something that they're not necessarily thinking they're going to get as much margin from. That is correct. Yeah. And it's also not clear that you'd even be allowed to accept bets from various states because um, right now it's all very state by state oriented in the U.S. So even if you had five or 10 different states, I'm not sure you'd be allowed to bet uh, one state to another. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying before. The cost of building up that liquidity, right, to then have a very loyal customer set. The exchange customer, however, was the most loyal, right? So if you took the data point we did have is if you had an exchange account, you had less other wallets, right? You were using less other sports books than staying kind of put and happy with what you have. So there's this loyalty play for it, but the cost to build up that liquidity, given what's happening in the state of play now in the U.S., it's just, you know, it, it's, it's not a decision that that they're willing, you know, that, that has, it's an opportunity cost. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Let's leave it there on exchange wagering and let's pick up with esports and the status of that and gambling on essentially video games, which is yeah. what you're focusing on in next gen. We'll, we'll pick that up after the break. We're talking to Bart Barton from Next Gen Wagering.
Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Hi, everyone, and happy holy holidays to you and yours. I'm Todd Schoenberger, co-host of Buy, Hold, Sell. And if you haven't already, you will absolutely want to listen to our latest show. We had well-known Wall Street executive Nancy Tengler appear as the featured guest, and she said exactly what investors needed to hear regarding their investment portfolios. Nancy also talked about her passion project of helping women become successful investors. Be sure to download the March 30th episode of Buy, Hold, Sell, Welcome back, everybody, to Double Down. We're talking to Bart Barton from Next Gen Wagering, who says that the future of sports betting is on esports. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a genuine skeptic of that, so let's see how you can do in convincing me that this is the future of, of, of wagering. Um, why don't you just start with, you know, does it exist at all right now? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get into trying to convince you here, James, okay. in a second, right? So uh, it's definitely a longer tail, you know, based opportunity. But being from the space and seeing how uh, tastes and audiences have changed over time, you know, I think I can, you know, try to paint a pretty good picture for you. But in terms of does it exist, it does exist. Uh, you are right. It isn't a it isn't a huge, you know, if you classify video game betting or what they call esports competitive video games as a category most sports books in the world it's 10th you know it's the 10th you know underneath 10 bet you know sports right 
Um, now, in some certain cases and with some sports books that have kind of embraced it, it's, you know, it's top five. You know, Jason Robbins has gone on record to say that, you know, he also believes that, you know, it might not unseat NFL per se, but he definitely thinks that it would be, a, you know, it should be in the future a larger percentage. But the pr main problem in the United States specifically is that in Europe, esports is regulated just like any other sport. Right. So if you can uh, list a bet on the Premier League, uh, Manchester United, for example, or you want to list a line on uh, an NFL match like Tampa Bay, uh, you can list a line on the latest competition of someone playing a game of Halo or someone playing a game of CSGO, right, which are two popular esports or video game competitions. But in the United States, esports is only allowed or considered a, a category of a sport in about nine to 12 of the states, even though, you know, there's more than 25 that have regulated themselves. And then each, the other states will approve them on what they call an ad hoc basis, which just becomes absolutely not scalable, right? So no one is going to offer these video game competitions that are speaking to uh, a different audience set that, are, that is in their product at this point, especially when they have to go through so many hoops just to offer the markets for someone to bet on, right? Now, that is changing, right? Over time, you see states, you know, adopt. Michigan was the last one to do it. You see Ohio considering it. You see this happening, right? And, and, it, and, and it will. It's probably still just, you know, 18 months behind. But the real growth of it is just the sheer number of people who, you know, in, in a generation where, you know, I, I, I work for a video game company. I love video games and I grew up on it, but I still love my Seahawks. I still love NFL. That's what I watch and consume. But these this millennial audience, this 18 to 25 or even 18 to 30, um, they're spending 47% more time watching video game content or YouTube or streamer content than they are actual live sporting events, right? And so eventually that consumption and what they grew up on cheering for professional video game players or streamers playing video games or Mr. Beast, right, doing these fun competitive game giveaways and playing Minecraft, those are going to be the ones with expendable income. Those are going to be the ones with the wallet. And they're not going to want to bet on the NFL or Premier League soccer. They're going to want to bet on what they're used to watching, which is competitive video gaming. So the reason I think that it's going to take over is the sheer consumption patterns that are occurring now at that. They're not just kids. They're 18 plus now. They're 25 plus. They eventually will have the consumption, they will do it. The example I like to use is when I was first got my job at Betfair, um, there was this uh, kind of interesting dichotomy of do you double down, no pun intended, on the horse racing better and make a better horse racing product because they are the most valuable better that was in each of the services? Or do you start to look after and go after what was the football or soccer better who needed different types of things? They needed more mobile app. They needed different things, but they were the rapidly growing audience, but they were younger and they were less valuable. And the people that did that, now soccer in European books is 65 plus percent of the handle of some of these books in Europe. And that was me, that was just 10 years ago. So it's only a matter of time, in my opinion. And I'm trying to put together some things that take a really great audience and people who have already 
collected that audience, such as Optic and some of these esports teams that I'm that, that I'm working with, and pairing it with a really good platform execution, such that you can actually present a product to these people because they expect something very different than the 50-year-old horse racing better. So help me understand, as someone who's a Gen Xer, uh, th this current world of video games. I also grew up with video games to an extent, a little bit more rudimentary. I, I think it was pong just a <laughs> thing going back and forth um but when i think of video games i think of people playing video games and yeah i hear all the time about kids getting addicted to video games and Fortnite and this and that but to what extent are people simply sitting back and watching yeah video games as opposed to playing them yeah um you if if you don't live and breathe in the industry that the numbers are shocking right so the the number i like to use is roughly speaking there's 650 million what they consider to be esports fans or competitive video game fans and what that means is they watch a match they watch two people or a group of people playing a video game they're not playing in it themselves they are watching a video game at least three times a month. That is the definition of an esports fan. And there is 650 million of them in the world. Um, and uh, pretty much equally spread out or is there a particular country that it's more popular in? So right now, the the heavy, if, if you had to say the, the, the biggest split is Asia Pacific, right? China, Asia Pacific, they have been watching video games. That type of concept has been a lot, it has existed there a lot longer. That's probably right around 40 to 45 percent of that audience, right? Then the like 30, 35 kind of Western Europe, Western Eastern Europe. I mean, it's very big in 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 um, in Eastern Europe as well. Um, and then North America, you know, Latin America, you know, call it call it the the Americas as picking up the remainder. Okay, and, and where and how do people watch these games? Yeah, so the. They, there are live events, right, where you can go to a live event and they fill a stadium and they broadcast it and you're watching the people set up and they're gaming. The best example that I would say that people would be familiar is they filled the Arthur Ashe Stadium in New York in 2018 for the Fortnite World Championships and that housed, you know, 25,000 people and it sold out. Oh, uh, sorry. You're uh, saying that people are actually there in person. They're actually there in person. They're playing the game in person and people are watching them with their computer setups. That's one way to do it but the majority of all the content and consumption is basically through a streaming platform so either youtube right watching it through youtube and live live product there watching it through twitch right which is another live broadcast tool um facebook gaming whatever so most people are watching it through an online live streamed broadcast channel that's where the majority of the consumption happens mm -hmm. and which games are the most popular give me like real quick like the top five yeah for people so top... for, for, for viewing purposes for, for viewing purposes, the the top five viewing, it's funny, right? If you if, if I take the, I'll, I'll call it, I'll, I'll take the Asia stuff out, right? Because in Asia, there's these crazy mobile games that get all these views, right? So it's kind of hard to throw out like, you know, you know, Kingdom of Fire. No one's going to know what that is. <laughs> but kind of the US product, obviously, Fortnite is very popular, right? From a viewing perspective. Now that skews a bit younger, right? But I'd say in the US, it's Call of Duty, right? Is is probably one of the biggest viewed games that has a competitive league. Uh, and then in, in Europe and Asia, 
It's more like League of Legends, which is a, a riot game. Now that's a lot more crazy. That's not even like a shooter. That's like a very fantasy driven kind of mega battle on a on a on a on a matrix map, right? It's a, it's a very different game. But then from a betting perspective, however, uh, it's very clearly top three. The most betting that occurs is on CS uh, Counter Strike, right? It's CS:GO, Dota 2, and League of Legends. Those are the top three games. And where's wagering happening uh, on those games? Uh, what, what parts of the world? Yeah, mainly mainly. Europe and Asia, right? Given what 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 said, but Latin America, typically Mexico, Brazil, um, has has seen an explosion of activity in in esports uh, wagering and, and and team consumption. So I'd say that's probably the fastest growing market. You know, uh, aside from obviously China and, and and places that are much much harder to reach for the for the Western world. And who's putting on these events? Yes, so most of the events kind of are done. There's there's a tournament organized kind of group. So there are four kind of big tournament organizer groups. Uh, ESL is the name of the of, of the group that tends to do some of the biggest events. And they will get the best teams. They'll coordinate it. They'll pick the venues. They'll get all the broadcast rights. They'll broker everything. Um, and then they put on the event, whether it's a four-day event or a six-day event or a seven-day event. Um, and then additionally, the video game publishers themselves, right? So Riot is the publisher owner of League of Legends, just like Epic is the is the publisher of Fortnite, and they will also then, as part of the season of competitiveness, they will then put on the finals or the event. So it'll actually be hosted by the game developers themselves. So those are the two paths. Have you seen any of it actually shown on regular te- cable television? So there, uh, ESPN did some rebroadcasting of the League of Legends finals last year on ESPN2. Um, and then out here, and I don't know if they have it in the U.S., but there was a cable network called Jim. And, and and there were some gaming specific gaming networks on cable television that were just showing it kind of constantly. But really, you know, 85, 90 plus percent is all through streaming platforms. And that's what that's what these guys use. That and that's what they consume through. So I did check a, a, a betting site that I regularly uh take a look at. We'll just leave it at that. And um and it it allowed betting on Madden football. Yes. Yes. Tell me tell me about that. Yeah. So there's two types of betting on Madden football. Uh, one is Madden actually also has a league or a professional competitive league that they will allow some betting in various games on. Right. Uh, much like the 2K league um, in, you know, for, for NBA 2K. Uh, but then what Madden also does is they more on this virtual. You had mentioned this virtual betting. What they do is they allow their game to, to be played by, in effect, a bunch of robots is, is the best way to, to, to say it. And those matches are then broadcast and you can bet on, in effect, a fake kind of football match because there's no NFL going on. But it's really it's a Madden shell. You're watching a game of Madden, but it's kind of between two automated people playing, but you can still make your bet kind of like betting on an automated horse racing machine with quarters, you know, at a casino. Right, right. Yeah. I forget the name of the company, but there was a company I was familiar with in Europe that that was all they were doing was creating these. Chiron. Chiron is a big virtual provider. Um, uh, Inspired did some uh, virtuals as well. Yeah. Big guys. Yeah. So, but that's not really your focus. Your your focus for your company is actual gamers playing. Yeah. I, I, I want to take live content, whether it's played by professionals or by very popular streamers and gamers. And what we're doing is we're building a platform to make the odds, the trading, 
to make a better kind of wagering and skill, right? You can do it just, you can create a very cool DFS daily fantasy pick them prize pick space product as well um, around that content because we know it gets a lot of eyeballs. No one puts together this content for them. They love to bet, right? The optic audience, for example, is 91% between 18 and 41, right? And 50% of them have some type of betting account. So we know they like to do this. We just want to give them content they're already watching to do it on. So yeah, help me understand exactly what NextGen is trying to do. I get it that we're all talking about betting on on, on video gaming or esports, but are you, how, what, what's going to be unique about your company versus ones that are already taking these bets? We're, we're really just creating the platform and the product specific for this customer, right? So instead of, uh, let's say, making a whole bunch of advancements on uh, build a bet technology, right? Or the same game parlay right? Or something like that. What we're doing is we're trying to take the betting experience and pushing it onto a broadcast. So because we know they're watching four different screens and four different matches at the same time, we're trying to do things like bringing cool overlays, making it faster, you know, presenting them with uh, betting markets that just make no sense for like, you know, an NFL guy. Like what does a next round market mean or a headshot kill? You know, no one offers a can this guy get a headshot the next shot they take? But we're trying to build those because these guys care about that, right? So we're trying to kind of take, obviously, we're not trying to be a sports book platform per se, right? We know I'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel there, but I'm really trying to build very specific, cool features, data, and services that speak to this audience specifically um, and then use uh, you know, a powerhouse group like Optic or these other content creators to help drive the audience and present the content to them. Gotcha. Would you look to partner with one of the big boy sports gaming companies? Oh, one, 100%. And in our discussions of, 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 of NextGen and, and the value proposition of NextGen, uh, we had been in discussions with some of these larger providers, either at the platform level, like your sport radars or whatever of the world, or the big wagering operators. And again, I think it's it's very much wait and see where th there's other green fields that they're attacking right now. But, you know, my pitch is always, hey, you know, just like DFS in 2015, right? That was really cheap people to get. There wasn't a betting product yet. And those are the best converting customers to real betting now. So we are going to be the DFS of 2025 or 2026 or 2027. I'm going to get a whole bunch of really cool millennial wallets who love watching and betting on this stuff. And hopefully then I can partner with one of the big operators at some stage and and and, and bring them a new audience that they haven't marketed to before. Any guess as to which U.S. state could be first for this? Well, I'd say that the most conducive state, so there are states that accept this, right? So if I was going into, you know, if I was able to stand this up immediately, New Jersey obviously is, is, is a big one. Nevada has done a lot of esports event legislation now, and that's on the docket. Um, Colorado is really friendly for esports betting, and uh, and Ohio it has has been um, has opened up and, and has gone legal in a friendly manner. Those would be the top targets just because they've been very pro esports wagering or esports transactions. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm semi convinced, I have to say. Uh, and certainly, you know, we're hearing a lot about AI and the metaverse and so on. So this seems to be perfectly geared toward if the future is the metaverse, uh, there's going to be wagering in the metaverse, just like there is in in our world. So yeah, yeah. I think I, I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for sharing all that. Uh, Bart Barden, Next Gen Gaming, anywhere they can go to check out more information about you or the company? Yeah, I mean, they can just hit me up, uh, 
a Bart at redzonedigital.com, which is just my 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 placeholder email, and or just reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm all over there, always posting about uh, esports and 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 getting into those uh, lovely discussions there. I'm just Bart Barden on LinkedIn, so they can hit me up there as well. All right, I'm gonna go uh, drink a Guinness in your honor. I'm sure you're gonna you're headed out to the pub. Sorry to keep you from the pubs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, it was a very nice day in Ireland today, so the pubs will be pubs will be packed. Oh my god. Gosh, that sounds amazing. I've only been there once, but I'm, I'm ready to go back. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening and watching to another episode of Double Down with Presla. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks again to Bart Martin. I want you to smash that like button. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.